Some of the currents Americans have been living through in recent years have felt almost tectonic at times. National populism, which caught us by surprise. Coarser political rhetoric, magnified by new social media platforms, which stirred the pot, putting it to elites and disrupting establishment types. Globalization, which altered economic life for many American workers, hardening attitudes toward immigration. A global pandemic, forcing tens of millions of Americans inside for a year or more, pivoting many of us from routinized face-to-face encounters to screen-based searches, very often it turns out, manipulated by algorithms. And conflict, or at least more conflict captured and replayed on television screens and glowing rectangles. School board decisions, disputes over mask wearing. Depending on your choice of cable news, even the public health mandates were viewed very differently. But in the midst of all that rancor, perhaps the deepest, most consequential current of the last year and a half reflected a reality with more than two centuries of momentum, a racial reckoning. That current, mid-pandemic, came to the fore in the wake of deep structural injustices that have been with us since the country's founding. And so, following the murder of George Floyd in May 2019, a wave of Black Lives Matter protests, first in the United States and then amazingly around the globe, we harnessed a growing frustration that equal opportunity and justice aren't yet a reality in America. Coupled with the killing of Breonna Taylor by police in Louisville and a host of other evidences of racism captured on camera, politicians and clerics and pundits debated police reform, body cameras, university policies, and other wide-ranging ways to check structurally embedded racism that is extremely difficult to upend. Many religious communities would say that work will in some sense always remain incomplete because, as our religious traditions teach, there is still evil in every human heart. That sin, not merely personal but also structural, is not easily undone. And yet all that brings us to today's incredibly refreshing conversation, facilitated by a pair of deeply thoughtful Vietnamese Americans who pivot the conversation about race from a focus merely about race's identity on the one hand, or on the other, about professions of colorblindness, to the more modest changes that can and should be achieved by focusing on real gains in matters of political economy. Dr. Jonathan Tran, Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology at Baylor University, immigrated to the United States in 1975, just as the Vietnam War was concluding. He and his family joined a wave of more than 120,000 refugees in one month alone, as he says, similar to the massive wave of Afghan refugees now needing safe haven and arriving to the United States today. Having grown up in 1980s Southern California that was awash in racial discrimination, Jonathan was shaped by his surroundings, but in time also by a profound religious faith that sees the work of the church expanding far beyond U.S. borders. His forthcoming book with Oxford University Press combines vivid personal story and systematic, rigorous scholarship that speaks directly to an incisive question. What I'm offering is a political economic account of the construction of race for these political economic realities for the sake of oppression, so that we can then have a relativized view of what race is. Jonathan sits down with an outstanding, hard-charging journalist, Tina Goyen, who also came to America as a refugee from Vietnam and spent the last six years covering the White House at Politico and a range of national cultural issues at Vanity Fair. In recent months, she's become a founding partner and national correspondent for Puck, a new startup 
that focuses exclusively on stories that emerge from what many argue are the nation's four leading culture-shaping cities, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, New York, and Washington. This conversation takes some fascinating twists and turns, and I hope you'll persevere through several hiccups with our audio to hear the rich, hopeful, textured insights about identity and what it means to be Asian American, about political participation and engagement, and about the power of global faith, even experienced within our fundamentally immigrant country. Enjoy the conversation. Jonathan and I actually had the uh, time to connect before we taped this podcast, and we just immediately hit it off. And I am so happy we did because it just showed that we had a lot of, I guess, similar understanding about the topic of Asian Americans and uh, religion and how that kind of affects their political actions. And Jonathan wrote this amazing book about it. And honestly, I wish I'd had that book when I was in college because my thesis was on Asian American political voting patterns. And I think you were just way ahead of the curve on me with that, Jonathan. (laughs) So like we go, you go to a bit in the preface of your book, but just for the uh, listeners out there, exactly like you came to the U.S., your parents were immigrants, and you write about how that seems like those two pieces of your identity just happened to flatten you in the estimation of like every other American out there. Could you go a little bit more into that and how it brought you to the world of political science? It's great to be on Faith Angle. This is a great podcast, and it's a real honor to be with the folks here and specifically with you, Tina. And and part of the connection, I imagine, is is both that we're Asian American, but we're also Vietnamese American. And that's a very specific kind of experience uh, in this country. It's Asian American, Vietnamese American, and then we're also obsessed with American politics, which that's is right. like the tiniest circle. Sure. Yeah. So I came to America in 75, which was the end of the Vietnam War. And it's not dissimilar to Afghanistan now, right? The US government at the end of the war allowed for, because of a series of uh, emergency legislation, allowed for, you know, about 10,000 Vietnamese to come to America. And lo and behold, about 120,000 came in about a month. And then tens of thousands of more would come in subsequent years. And I was part of that group. And even as a child, I could tell people had no idea what to do with me, uh, what to do with our family. America had fought three subsequent wars with people who looked like us. Japan, Korea, and Vietnam. And our war was one where America lost for a country that tells its history, not only through the history of war, but the series of wars proven victorious, then that was pretty hard for the American self-image. So we came to represent American failure. That's why you see so often depictions of the Vietnam War as associations with atrocity, as if the war represented the failure of America as a narrative, as a story. So now when you're two or three years old and you come to America and you're negotiating those realities, that's a lot to contend with. My experience in America was on the one hand, people were extraordinarily generous to us. The Lutheran church, a a number of mainline denominations adopted Vietnamese immigrants in partnership with the U.S. government to settle us here. I think my parents came in through uh, Mormons, actually. Okay, yeah. they, uh, they They met in Salt Lake City of all the random places, but I think the Mormon church sponsored them there. Yeah, so Catholicism was very large in Vietnam, but not with our family. So we were received into a Lutheran church, which was, I'm sure, utterly bizarre for my family and utterly bizarre for the the Lutheran church. I have memories of sitting in the back of the church, 
on some hard wooden pew, drawing pictures on the tithe cards and looking in front of me and seeing a, a, a sea of bluish white hair because everyone was so old there. But my impression of these folks was incredible generosity and kindness. I think they had no idea what to do with us, but they fed us, gave us shelter, helped us negotiate things like the grocery store or language. So that was one side of my first years in America. The others that would color my experience for the rest of my life was significant amounts of racism. And the racism came from all kinds of folks in all kinds of ways. And so the word gook or chink or nip, those were just common cause back then. As I say in the Mm -hmm. book, I grew up in a time in America where racism was not only accepted, it was expected. People expected to be racist and people expected to hear racist things when they walked down the street or what they went to school or what have you. That profoundly shaped my life. I think the book is the attempt to negotiate two things. And I think these two things represent this moment we are as a nation as and, and society, which is how do we properly acknowledge the violences that we have put on one another, uh, especially people of color, especially women, especially the poor? How do we properly acknowledge that and the structures and systems that gave birth to that and continue to sustain those while also speaking hopefully about our futures and our futures together? This is a question I'm not sure we have good answers for at this moment. We have increasing, thank goodness, abilities to acknowledge the past. But how do we acknowledge the past without allowing the past to destroy us? And those destructions would be properly motivated because the violences of the past are that terrible, especially in the ways they continue to haunt and determine the present and future. I think the reason that this conversation has started to finally break into beyond the Asian American community and academia is because of COVID. And I would say that once you start seeing rise in Asian American hate crime, combined with the fact that we now have ways to tell people about this, primarily through the internet, but like also an increased awareness of I know that a lot of our center-right audience is going to maybe like break out in mild hives over this, but the idea of structural racism and the ways that anti-Asian American animus, I guess, like a simmering one, not like virulent, but the way that that sort of existed in how Asian Americans can enter the political conversation. (laughs) So I am most certainly not accusing our audience of being like racist at all. But this is, I think... And tell me if you disagree with me, Jonathan, that it is such a new conversation and a new topic of discourse that I think needs to be broadcast on a bigger, louder platform. And I think you go into a bit of this in your book as well. So Jonathan, picking up on what Tina was just sharing, I wonder, could you say a little bit more about your own arrival to the States, because so much of the argument of the book comes from your experience. You mention in the book that you moved 13 times in your first decade or so in the United States, that you were, of course, college bound, but that that wasn't true of all of your friends, including one particular young man, a friend of yours named Cliff. And you tell a story. Could you tell that story to to our, our listeners? It just seems to sort of hang as a kind of snapshot of uncertainty. 
So I start the book by talking about growing up in the 1970s and 80s in the United States as a war refugee. And as I mentioned, a lot of that was surrounded by racism. And the racism came from all kinds of places. The other part of my life that I believe was deeply connected was that we grew up through a significant amount of poverty. We were refugees uh, and war refugees at that. So our family moved around a ton. We moved 14 times before I got to high school, which any kid who knows what it means to leave a school, it's a small death in and of itself. And we did this regularly. Well, one of the kids... I got to know was, which became one of my very good friends, Cliff. I mean, when you move that much and childhood itself is often this kind of ongoing estrangement, you're looking for friends in any place, in any way you can get. And Cliff and I found one another. We found each other because we're both people of color. He was African-American. I was Vietnamese American. We were both poor. So that meant we didn't have a lot of friends and we both moved around. So we found one another. We hit it off instantly. It was at that age between, you know, right at ninth grade where you're kind of leaving childhood behind and kind of coming terms with who you are and what the world is. So we hit it off and, you know, you did the kind of things that kids do, rode on bikes, built model airplanes, played the alleyways around our house, this kind of thing. He was for a long time my only friend, and I believe I was really his only friend. Our lives were similar in many kinds of ways that I just described, but they were also drastically different. I lived in an apartment complex with my mom, and we at least had been living there for a few months. Cliff and his family lived in and outside of, uh, in and out of a hotel, or was a motel, the Motel Tampico in Anaheim, California. Uh, and the rent was a weekly basis. Uh, it was that kind of thing. I could tell that life was super precarious for Cliff and his family. I went to visit them a couple times at their apartment. Uh, They lived literally out of uh, black garbage bags. And so while my life was in, you know, a picture of, say, the upwardly mobile of the immigrant community, Cliff's looked like it was stuck in a perpetual system that sought to keep him and his family down. Even then, I could feel that. Regardless of the challenges we both had and had in our own kinds of ways, we made a go of it. We were really great friends and we laughed together and we struggled together and, you know, walked through high school together. At some point later in high school, I started hanging out with honors kids that, you know, are headed to college and this kind of thing, Nerdville, that a lot of people are familiar with. Cliff wasn't part of that group and uh, we started to drift apart a little bit. At one point, Cliff found me on campus and told me that he had been harassed by white racist skinheads. I mean, these weren't just like racist people. They were literally skinheads. He shaved heads, a very particular kind of style and dress. They weren't shy about their white supremacist beliefs. Uh, And every day, Cliff told me after school, they would chase him, chase him literally back to his house. And he was coming to me as his friend to see what I could do. It terrorized me to hear this story because someone I cared about was being harmed and injured in this kind of way. And it terrorized me because I felt helpless. I didn't know what to do. I, of course, said, have you talked to the teachers? Have you talked to the vice principal? Have you told your parents? But little did I know how totalizing the structures and systems were dead set against people like Cliff. And so the very resources that I would have as a matter of course, Cliff didn't have. And so the school was powerless to help him. His parents could not help him. And so every day it was a kind of survival game. 
in the midst of the terror, my only response to Cliff was something like, you'll make it. You'll survive. And I think I thought that maybe they would just get bored with this, that they would kind of move on to someone else, or maybe Cliff himself would move at least for a while. They would forget about him. I never found out what happened. I didn't have the courage to ask. I didn't have the courage to stand beside him, to walk home with him. Uh, I didn't have the courage to fight for him. It's a memory that haunts me. I think about it decades later. I look back again at now and I recognize the terror of childhood, all the terrors of childhood, especially as a, a war immigrant who had suffered as much racism and poverty as our family already had. My options were limited, but that doesn't take away the sense that you failed your friend. And you talk in the book a little bit about race and identity and race being tied together as part of the founding of the country. And you titled your book something rather interesting. You know, 1905, Max Weber wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. You've titled your forthcoming book. What, what is it exactly about the spirit of capitalism? Can you tell us why you titled it as you did? Sure. The book is called Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. And it tries to make good on two large groups of concepts and then spirit ties them together. The first is the experience of Asian Americans in this country, which is an extraordinarily wide history. As Tina was saying, it names an impossibly diverse group of realities, histories, languages, ethnicities. And then the other thing is it tries to use a concept from the Black radical tradition called Black Marxism or racial capitalism. In this analysis, race is created as an ideological justification for inequality and domination. And so you have a system that is structured to exploit the earth, to exploit other human beings, to make money, to hold up structures of domination and power. Race comes on the back end of that system to justify it. It's a way of doing this. We drive around... DC or LA or Waco, and you see black and brown people. You see also that they live under conditions of dilapidated housing, lack of access to healthcare or education. And rather than questioning the society of why those conditions persist, you blame them. It's the ultimate form of gaslighting. It's to say it's not something about our society, it's something about you, something natural to who you are. So I was trying to offer an account of racism in terms of racial capitalism. And in this picture, race is used as an ideological justification for domination. And so you have systems, say, of obvious inequality. And the obvious inequality is given an ironically moral sense of respectability because you use the language of race. And as I said earlier, it's a type of gaslighting. It's the casting of blame on those who suffer the injustices as if it's natural to who they are, natural to their race. The question then becomes something about their race rather than the structures and systems that have put them under the foot of these forms of oppression. Black Marxists and the Black radical tradition have offered this account of racism as a way to challenge the ways in which racial identity becomes the primary marker by which we think about questions of racism. And, and that's really what the book tries to take up. If Aristotle had that idea of the mean that sits between the two poles, and you describe how racial identity has been part of the wounds that 
your friend Cliff experienced, that you have experienced along the way, that that has been baked into the country in in certain ways from the beginning, and we're living downstream of that on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's this group of people in the academy or people on the right maybe that want to say, no, 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 we're living in a colorblind world. There have been so many gains. Let's just be colorblind. You're saying neither of those is right, I hear you saying in the book. Uh, but there is something else that is also being proposed that's being introduced is tied to something about the church you describe. I mean, t- help us. What is what is in the middle of those two poles? Where do we go? Obviously, recognizing this is an incredibly complicated dilemma, but what are you proposing that's different than the reigning orthodoxy of the academy? Well, let me describe the two poles first. I think you've done a good job helping us begin to think about this, right? The two poles are those who benefit from the structured racism the racial capitalism as I describe it, that is those who use race to justify the wealth, the comfort, the domination that basically fixes their life in the world. And they don't want to come to terms with the history of racism or its structural reality in the present. They're going to resist a demonized version of CRT, namely because it's too uncomfortable for them to come to terms with their own lives uh, and the lives of the, the life of the history of this country. On the other side, though, there's the attempt to acknowledge the reality of racism, say forms of anti-racism, but these forms of thinking and resistance and politicking cannot help but reinforce the same racial structure that's set up in the first place by racial capitalism. And so my book is the attempt, joining many others who have done this, to try to find a different way, to neither deny the history of our racism and its structured realities in the present, but also not to double down on forms of race thinking, ways in which anti-racism pursues liberation by reinforcing the very fiction and power of race thinking altogether. This is a really hard thing to do because if you're a racial minority, if you've been racialized, right, everyone's been racialized, including uh, and especially I want to say white folks, They too were given what Du Bois called a psychological wage. They are told that they were white, poor white people who were oppressed in their own ways were told, well, at least you're white and you should be happy with that. So we're all racialized people. The power of racialization is not only its forms of oppression, but tricking us into believing that race is also our way out to step further and double down on race and the racial categories imposed on us. And it makes sense for oppressed people to do that because that's what's ready at hand. What I'm offering is a political economic account of the construction of race for these political economic realities for the sake of oppression so that we can then have a relativized view of what race is. We can be less uh, ready to step into race language and more suspicious of its deployment. My hope is doing so then opens up vistas to other forms of liberation. That is, if the primary thing that race is meant to do is to oppress us politically, economically, then what are the political economic routes to liberation? And I'm challenging the notion that race is a way that will help us get out of that. My thought, it will only reinforce the superstructure that sets in place the domination of oppression that we currently live in. 
you and I, Jonathan, we've talked in the past about like our own backgrounds growing up and how that ended up shaping. When you were talking about that earlier, I suddenly had this flashback to a story I wrote about Andrew Yang. It was right after this spa shootings in Atlanta, where a white man targeted Asian women. It was in the middle of his run for mayor of New York City, where going into it as a presidential candidate, he barely touched race at all. And when he dropped out, he published this extremely controversial op-ed saying Asian Americans should be part of the cure of anti-Asian coronavirus racism. But then he started saying, like, we should wear red, white and blue and we should volunteer for drives and we should, like, combat racism by And the entire Asian American community just kind of their jaws dropped at that moment because that was just it seemed from his perspective. Do you remember this? Yeah. I mean, America, Asian Americans all across the country were like, that's what we call the model minority myth, buddy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I finally got an interview with him where he went really in depth about why he did that. And one of the things I realized going into his background was that he came from a background where he was highly privileged in the moment of his birth. Like his parents emigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan as academics with scholarships to Berkeley from environments that weren't particularly as rough as being a refugee from Vietnam and losing everything. But his parents got PhDs from Berkeley. They got jobs at IBM. They moved up to IBM headquarters in upstate New York. Um, That's the context in which he grew up in. And yeah, there was that moment where he was the only Asian American in his class. But then he went to Phillips Exeter from there. (laughs) And like, that's the whitest, most privileged school I could think of. And then he went from there to Columbia and Brown. And like, this is a background that, you know, Mayflower descendants would stab each other to obtain. (laughs) When I asked him, look, you're running for mayor of New York. This has been a hotbed of anti-Asian violence. A lot of it has to do with the fact that these, like the people who are targeted are really impoverished, cannot speak English, will never have the opportunities that you have. Has connecting with this community changed anything about how you view the fight against API people, like to establish an API political identity? And he just I I have to hear what he said. What did he say? uh, He said, it's true that several people came up through different circumstances. But my point is that we should be more integrated in this community. And I'm like, you did not. You still hold on to that model minority myth. And part of the article, I went into the background of that term. And um, what fascinated me was that I, I never figured out where that term came from until I started reading about like how this term came about. And. It was a Columbia sociologist named William Peterson, whom, as you can infer from his name, is a white dude. And it was the 1960s. And he wrote this article for The New York Times magazine where he looked at the phenomenon of why Japanese Americans had bounced back from the internment camps and why it was that black communities did not after centuries of slavery. And the way he put it was because the white people were racist against black and provided them with inferior services, like worse schools were like fewer job opportunities. They were not able to succeed, but it's been going on for so long that quote, the cumulative degradation 
unquote, has put it towards a point where it cannot ever recover. And then he looked at the Asian American community and the Japanese and went, but look at how these guys have managed to bounce back from what I would like to call equal hardships. And from that point on, it was just like, oh, look, there must be some sort of ethnic disposition that Japanese Americans and, you know, therefore Asian Americans have that has made them succeed better than Black communities, Latino communities. That is something that is so hard to break. So um, in your book, there is a, you know, a lot of economic reasons going into it. There are a lot of religious reasons going into it. So um, can you just like blow up that term you were talking about earlier with racial capitalism, the racial capitalism? Yes. Yeah. I mean, just to add to your astute uh, picture of Peterson, I mean, we can't forget the time period in which Peterson writes about the model minority. This is in the late 1960s. Peterson had spent time at Berkeley. He knew the student revolts and movements for liberation. And what he was saying or what the article said implicitly was, look, Black people, this is how to be a proper minority. Be like Asian Americans. Be like the Japanese who have themselves suffered oppression. He meant the internment. And yet they've succeeded. So quit getting in the streets, quit protesting, quit marching, and be a good Asian American model minority. And so there is a direct disciplinary aspect to the model minority myth. It's saying something about Asian Americans, and what it's saying is extraordinarily inaccurate, but it's also saying something about everybody else. Mm -hmm. That is, get in line. And that's how it's been deployed, as a tactic both to control Asian Americans, to perceive them in a certain light, but also to control and perceive other folks. The part of the power of the model minority myth is that Americans want to believe it. Why do they want to believe it? They want to believe that the American dream is alive. They want to believe that there are not structures and systems pitted against people of color succeeding in this country. So the Asian American model minority myth is to say things aren't so bad that people of color, people who have experienced oppression, can't make it in this country. And so they use Asian Americans as a test case to testify that America is not so bad, that it's a good place. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to say the other part of the model minority myth is also difficult. If one problem with the model minority myth is it just inaccurately describes a group of people, and you, could, you knew that was going to be the case when you slapped on an incredibly diverse set of histories, languages, experiences, the term Asian American, you knew that that was going to be a false description. The reality is if you disaggregate the name, the numbers, right, Vietnamese, our people, Vietnamese people go to college pretty seldomly. Cambodians have some of the highest rates of poverty in this country. You think about some of the numbers that have come out of COVID. Filipino Americans make up 3% of the nursing industry in our country, and yet they accounted for nearly one third of the deaths frontline healthcare workers. So you disaggregate the numbers, it's a much messier picture. So that's one problem with the model minority myth. The other one is this, it actually tempts some Asian Americans that that's how you be Asian American, that you do have to go to the right college, you do have to have certain amounts of wealth and success. And if you should pursue that wealth and success in education in inequitable ways, in forms of resource hoarding, in forms of racism against other people of color, so be it, because that's your destiny as a model minority. And while we talk about the former set of problems, we Asian Americans are often more deflective of the second. 
To me, that's the most nefarious part of the model minority myth is on the one hand, deeply nefarious to discipline people of other races, but also deeply problematic to tell Asian Americans, this is how you do it. Participate in forms of um, injustice to be Asian American. That's also part of the model minority myth. Yeah. I think one of the best ways we could possibly illustrate this for our listeners who are more politically aware than I think is attacked, like they're more politically aware and kind of think in terms of who gets voted into office, what is happening in policy, than what is like an academic discussion between the two of us. This is the most fascinating phenomenon, but I think it touches on this social socioeconomic divide. Vietnamese people who are extremely pro-Trump, whereas pretty much every other minority is not pro-Trump. Like it is the most, like they're more MAGA than white people, I swear to God. Why, Tina? Yeah, tell us that. Tell us why. Honestly, I think it's, there are a couple of things going on here, right? Like one, they came from a communist, they came from a place where communism and socialism literally wiped out everything they knew, all of their like history, all of their financial resources that they built over generations, just like absolutely, like totally destroyed by communists coming in and seizing all of their property. And when you come to the United States and you try to claw your way back into some sort of financial stability, then you see all these socialists come. What you see are socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders coming in. There's such a visceral reaction against their policies and against the idea of socialism themselves. If you are older, I would say someone who remembers the fall of Saigon, that turns you really pro-Trump immediately. Like, I recommend that everyone try to find this video of a pro-Trump Vietnamese choir singing Vote for Donald Trump 2020, USA, USA, make America great, great again. <laughs> but um, when you're talking about this, Jonathan, you had this other complete, like absolutely spot on observation about the idea that like, what older Vietnamese Americans want to do is return to a point where their lives were great again. We are talking about our families, and I have some of those folks in my family. They're Vietnamese. They live in Southern California. They love Donald Trump. They will defend him to the death. And when I think about why, I realize the rhetoric that Donald Trump uses, say, about pre-1960s America, a lily white suburban you got the dad working, the mom comes home, receives him with dinner, 2.5 children, the white picket fence. There's a kind of lore like that among Vietnamese Americans because, you know, my family, I mentioned we were really poor in America. We were really wealthy in North Vietnam before the communists took over. And so there's an imaginative story in the background there that Donald Trump can get us back to that. And in the same way that you often hear parent people of my parents' generation say, well, we can't wait to get back to Vietnam, like literally move back to Vietnam. What they want to do is go back in a time machine to this world, this fantasy. And what Donald Trump promises them is that fantasy. And the funny thing is, is that like within my own family as well, you have certain tiers of socioeconomic achievement. So my mom was ended up getting her PhD from Harvard. 
And she had some like more economic stability than maybe half of my family who, let's see, one of my aunts owns a tailor shop, another is a mechanic. The ones who have somewhat like achieved some sort of stability and financial success are very anti-Trump. The ones who never really did reach that are super pro-Trump. They've literally split into two group chats and hate each other now. But that sort of illustrates to me like why it is that it's impossible to aggregate all Asian Americans into one thing, because given your religious background, given how you came to this country, given like where you are in society, that informs your voting decisions. Yeah. And and the Trump Vietnamese American phenomenon gets to some larger realities around race and politics at this moment. I mean, you're seeing not simply Vietnamese Americans turning to Trump, but a number of people of color because they find on the left a commitment to color disconnected from things like political economy to where their kids go to school, to the access to to healthcare that they'll have. And so they'll go wherever they can. If you have a man that's spewing lies that he'll get you to some place, then that's going to be intoxicating no matter what race you are. The left's inability to connect discussions of race to questions of the political economy to actually address structures and systems is going to open up a vacuum on the right for Donald Trump and for him to pull in all kinds of people of color who are tired of not having access, the folks you're talking about in your family, with a picture of America that seems idealistic, right? And and that's what we've been seeing. Unless the left is able to make these connections, right, to develop a coalition across people of oppression, people of color, white, poor folks who are laborers and not getting access to the same kind of systems, Donald Trump will continue to have power as he does, and there will be further Donald Trumps down the line. Mm -hmm. So one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about this is to, in this uh, vein, I guess, is to explore for our listeners exactly how different ethnicities within the kind of aggregate of Asian Americanness, their religious choices, how that seems to inform like their political actions. Because I feel like that's such an undercovered topic when it comes to Asian Americans that I feel like you have more insight to it than I do. Yeah, I mean, the history of Asian Americans coming to the United States and in many cases adopting Uh, native forms of religion, specifically Christianity, is a long one. In the book, I talk about two distinct Asian American communities, Chinese migrants who came as laborers in the post-Civil War, the Reconstruction South. Namely, the South had slave labor. That's how it built out its economy. After emancipation, they're looking for new forms of slave labor or other ways to exploit labor. And so they shipped in a bunch of Chinese folks. And these folks didn't live, they didn't work in the plantations for long, but they stayed in the South, and namely by creating grocery stores that catered to the needs of African Americans who were not allowed to have services in the white community. Over time, they adopted white culture and specifically white religion, Southern Baptist religion. And the Southern Baptist religion didn't do anything to apprise them of the injustice all around them and in which they were participating in. Uh, oftentimes through these grocery stores. That's the story of how religion doesn't help us, that in fact further entrenches us in forms of uh, inequality and exploitation. 
Whereas in like the black church that ended up like the networks of churches across the country ended up being a hub for the civil rights movement. Exactly right. If those Chinese Americans had been in the black churches, it might have been a very, very different story. I do tell the story on the back end of a contemporary religious community in San Francisco, folks who graduated from elite universities and got it in their mind that Jesus loves the poor and the oppressed. And so these folks, again, with the elite degrees, made their homes with the poor and the oppressed. And they have created a structure, uh, what I call a kind of microeconomy of a church, a software company, because a lot of them graduate with electrical engineering degrees from Stanford and Cal. Oh, my God. Uh, a, software, a software company that creates money through software because they are in the Silicon Valley. And then they use that money to redistribute to the local economy, namely by creating a school and a micro loan outfit that helps local businesses. At the center of their life is a church, and it is their picture of the gospel that whatever salvation names, it's deeply connected to liberation. It's deeply committed to fighting oppression. And so you have this little microecology of a church. You know, it's less than 100 people, a church, a neighborhood school where neighbors are able to go largely for free, even though the average cost of private education in San Francisco is in the tens of thousands. These kids go for free and it's all made possible by a software company that redistributes money. Uh, this is a picture of what I call um, the divine economy. In the early parts of Christianity, the, what we call the gospel, God's saving action was referred to as the divine economy. It's saying that creation can generally be thought of in terms of economic terms. Uh, and the economy of God is one where grace flows through, that the structures of our society are bent towards justice, right? That in a sense, justice is natural to our world because this is God's world. And what these folks are doing is living into it. It's interesting in listening to the religion aspect of the narrative you just laid out. I mean, including the stories you described at the beginning about the Catholic church, the Lutheran church sort of being a place of refuge, that there's potential plus and that there's potential minus within the institutional church that can either reinforce or hold up something better than the sort of myth you talk about in the book that we're reduced to, to what we are racially as identity. That's a great way of putting it. Part of the power of these, this community story is the way the negative, the minus, empowers and encourages the plus. When you ask these people why they live their lives and why they've given up the things they've done, they're not going to say it's because we're virtuous people. They're not even going to say we're called to do good. They're going to see it as a form of repentance of the power and privileges granted to them. And then they're going to say that the greatest joy they could have found in this world is to live with these neighbors, right? It's not a story of like, poor us, we have to go live with these people. It's we actually found friends and neighbors and coalitional partners in this community in a way that we haven't found them elsewhere elsewhere in the world. Now, we're tempted as Asian Americans to that model minority myth, but we found at the end of the day, what the myth gives us, say, wealth and separation from other minoritized people, wasn't all that great. And so their story is a, is a way in which a proper attention to what you call the minus pushes you to a certain possibility of the pluses. It's an extraordinary story for that reason. I'm personally not very familiar with like other 
like Asian American religious groups in the country. But I think if I were to put on my like non-Asian American person hat, they would immediately start asking about how, say, like the Vietnamese Catholic community asks and the Korean evangelical community, because those are two communities that have their own very distinct identities. And especially in Korean evangelical communities, their own very specific churches. Would you be able to go into any of that? My good friend, Melissa Borja, who's a historian at the University of Michigan, she has a book coming out with Harvard University Press about Hmong animist religion. Mm-hmm. And how Hmong animus religion inspires forms of justice and coalitional partnerships. Uh, the Hmong have a very difficult history, both in Asia and in the United States. And it's really out of their religion, right? Out of some pretty conservative sets of commitments, what people would call conservative, that drive them to really powerful forms of progressive politics. Yeah. And so I think there's all kinds of stories like this. I think we've unduly divided up, say, religion as a conservative reality of, say, white folks. But religion properly deployed can motivate extraordinary forms of political courage. It always has. It's just often been covered over by what Josh calls the minuses. And we have to admit there are a lot of minuses on the Christian side, but that's not the whole story of Christianity and certainly not the whole story of religion. I think that's an amazing point that you just made from the media side of all of this. And the reason I became involved with Faith Angle was because uh, every year they throw a conference where they invite journalists from every single, like all all these outlets across the country to come together and discuss issues of how faith informs politics. And the fact that like the mission comes from a very clear understanding that faith is not discussed in culture overall, unless it's through the lens of oh gosh, how are religious people trying to take away rights or some such is, I don't know, it is, it really does sort of negate that, like not just the way that they positively engage in politics, but the way they engage at all in politics in a way that's not like Billy Graham or the, you know, religious right movement in the 1990s. And I think that's, I don't know, I think that's just like a total disservice. Like how has that played out in the way that you've written this book and the way that you've want to advance Asian Americans in academia? I guess we're going to like kind of narrow it to academia. Well, I'm going to answer this question quickly and then turn around and ask you a question about something you said earlier that I thought that was really fascinating. But I began with the idea that Christianity has corrupted itself for hundreds of years and that there is a synonymous relationship between American white folks, American racism, and American Christianity. But I don't want to give up on Christianity. And I think if we can begin to do that, then this becomes a fight over the future and soul of Christianity. Is it going to be something put in the service of white dominance and power? Or can it be turned around as it has been for liberation forms of Christianity since the beginning? Even before the beginning of Christianity, you think about the book of Exodus, the Hebrew notion of liberation and Exodus from enslavement. So if we can claim that tradition and history in American Christianity, then I think we have some grounding for hope. And that's where I began. There's a part of Christian theology that wants to begin by dismissing Christianity, and they have really good reasons. As a Christian, I have to find other reasons. 
it reminds me earlier you, uh, when we talked about the talk the other day, you had mentioned your your mom's own experience in organizing in Boston. I guess maybe during her graduate school days in Harvard. Mm-hmm. That's not a story we get to hear every day. So we want to mo- want to hear more about your family. Tell us about your your family and then what it was like to grow up in that context. So rest in peace, mommy. But when she first came to the U.S., she was absolutely brilliant woman. And when she first came to the U.S and moved to Boston. She got her degree in political science, but then she also started realizing various injustices in the way that Asian Americans had access to education. And honestly, I can't remember most of it off the top of my head, but she and her mentor, Peter Kang, who has been a community organizer in Boston since the late 70s, early 80s, filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice talking about how there was some form of affirmative action in the way that they, I guess, investigated schools over this and they won. And eventually from there, my mom got her PhD in educational theory from Harvard University. And her mission from there on was to teach teachers how to teach and how to tailor uh, educational pedagogy to like lower income minority students. Now, she was not particularly religious. If anything, she kind of grew up in a Buddhist Zen environment. And I think that she was involved with the local temple in Boston growing up. So I don't think she ever really understood Christianity very well. Her only, the only experiences that she ever told me about was how the Mormons sponsored her to the U.S. and how she was always a little weird about the way that they tried to convert her. Like they literally just kept trying to convert her over and over again. But I think there was this absolute like hardcore belief that education was the way out of poverty. And maybe that was a bit of a model minority thing that she believed in, but the fact that she tried to extend those opportunities beyond her own children to the greater Boston community, public schools in particular, I think said a lot about the ways that, as you were talking about earlier, Asian American community try to do good for their neighbors, the people around them, rather than becoming insular and trying to protect their own. My mom was a rare soul, but she did. And she passed actually the Asian American Studies Department at UMass Boston dedicated an award in her name. And I had no idea like the wow. impact that she had on these students. But then they asked me to come speak. And I don't know. And like there was an entire audience full of people that she had taught at some point or that she had worked with in her early organizing days. And I was like, I had no idea you existed. This is amazing. (laughs) So were you aware of the work she was doing growing up? And what was it like to grow up with a mom like that? I was aware to some degree. And uh, I think this is part of the reason that I have enjoyed some degree of success compared to other Asian Americans is because she actively sought out opportunities for me to attend elite schools. I think she somehow talked like a private school in Massachusetts into accepting me. She tended to separate her work life from her children. So I am aware to some degree of how she impacted these lives. But honestly, I think her community work 
was always very separate from the work raising her children. So she did do the tiger mom thing with us. And I don't know why she thought I could be a journalist, but she encouraged that. That also did have to do with her belief that there are different ways for people to become successful in the country. And what you need to do is to encourage their development on that path. Her thesis actually was on Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences theory and how to tailor educational opportunities and teaching styles to the needs of the students in question and how to find ways for them to kind of succeed along the paths that they seem to be best at. So what's it been like to take her legacy as you have, not only as an Asian American, but also as an Asian American woman in an industry that's so public and so visible and so laden with difficult, complex political questions, certainly questions about race and gender. What's it been like to kind of negotiate the space of journalism? So a little bit about me. One of the reasons I think that Faith Engel invited me to the conference was because I cover not just politics, but the Republican Party as a whole. And that has been absolutely fascinating. Like, I think the first time growing up that I realized the impact that religion had, not just in politics, but someone's entire worldview, was when I left the Northeast to attend Tulane in New Orleans, Louisiana. And that summer, I interned for Bobby Jindal's office. He'd just been elected governor at the time. And he was not just like he was a very devout Catholic to the point that he actually wrote for about the time that he performed an exorcism and the degree to which he had like his faith and his devoutness and Catholicism allowed him to connect to like the extremely white world of Louisiana politics and overcome that racial boundary that he had as an Indian man whose parents moved to the U.S. and then he kind of went through the traditional Asian American beats of I went to Brown, then I went to McKinsey, then I did, you know, did some nerd stuff, but now I'm governor. I drew genuinely believe that his Catholicism helped him overcome a huge political hurdle in Louisiana. Now, granted, there may have been some model minority myth stuff going on there, but his devoutness really connected to post-Katrina New Orleans. And I think not just among white people, but among pretty substantially over a Democrat in that election. And that was also the year that I first, that I moved in with a bunch of hardcore Catholics, one of whom became an Ursuline nun. So just that exposure to like Catholic theology, Catholic, like Thomistic thought, and then going to Claremont McKenna, which is an academically conservative school in California, I ended up taking a lot of classes about politics and religion. And I think that background really informed the way that I report on Republican politics, which is very well in the mainstream media. (laughs) I'm sorry to my peers, but like their understanding of how to talk about Republicans and the ways they do their things and why they, why one could be an evangelical, but really love Donald Trump, who is, you know, a heretic. (laughs) That's why Vietnamese people like Trump, why why certain churches don't like Trump, why Catholic Mexicans like Trump. Yeah, I think that's sort of where I come from on this weird path. I know, but I like my career. (laughs) I like what I do. Surely every one of us and every one of us listening has a weird path. And I think a point of departure for the project 
Tina is really saying that that religion is always in the room, whether we're observing it or not. And it's better to observe it if we can. It's not always 11. Sometimes it's a minus in the categories like those that John has just described today. But you cannot explain the anti-slavery movement, the women's vote, prohibition, civil rights, voting rights. You cannot explain these, these dynamics in American history without looking at religion. I think maybe with that, we should say thank you so much to you, Tina, and to you, Jonathan, for making time today. Really appreciate it, even though it's a lot to chew on. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Faith Angle connects mainstream journalists with religion scholars whose own work is grounded not only in outstanding scholarship, but also, as today, in deep faith. Thanks for listening.